a little excited to hear what this is. <laughs> I heard Drex talking about this on the shift overnight. They were going on about this song, Africa. You gotta be kidding me. Is this Weezer? Yes, it is. Get out. It's are Weezer. They, are they legitimately releasing this song? Well, it, the... I can't imagine that they'd spend this much time and effort creating it to sound so good and not release it. Oh, what a letdown. There was a fan campaign, apparently. Weezer cover, Africa by Toto. After fan campaign on social media has seen the band cover not one, but two Toto songs. <laughs> I didn't know they actually had a second song. Rosanna. <laughs> okay. Well, how fitting is that on this Wednesday morning? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I, well, that, that, Weezer is, they're a fun band, and they, they, they like to take to, uh, make the habit of their first single off albums, often is the, sort of a middle finger to the record label. True. Because um, they, they, they don't want to do the radio singles, but the label says, no, we need to have something we can make commercially viable, so the, the, the whole song is about how they hate the record label, and, but they still end up being catchy. I don't know why they don't want to just make catchy tunes. Uh, they'll wear uh, skinny ties and suits and stuff, Weezer, will they not? Um, I don't know. I, it's been a while since I've actually seen them. Am I confusing them with the... No, the offspring doesn't. Anyway, good morning, Brett. Hi there. I was, uh, Jerry said... Man, I'm disappointed. Uh-oh. No, Jerry said he's going to play this new tune. <laughs> yeah. uh, like, this feels a lot like 1984. What's going on here? <laughs> anyway. Thought you had digress. something in your ears? Yes, I've yes. I've got olive oil in my ears right now. Are you working on that still? Doctor's orders. Okay. Yeah, because I, when I went to see him last time, I said, uh, there's something going on in my ear, and it kind of scratches from time to time, depending on really if I hear something really high pitch or, right. or shrill. Yeah. And uh, he said, well, you kind of, he had a peak, and he said, oh, you're just really plugged up, so... You got. I have to apply olive oil three times a day to try to soften it up, and then I guess they're going to try to flush it. I don't know. I was wondering why you had extra virgin olive oil at your desk. I was looking for the balsamic <laughs> vinegar. You were making me hungry, man. Oh, that's <laughs> little, in my second drawer. A little Earl's pan bread there, and uh, we're ready to go. Start the day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, we've got a whole bunch of stuff to give away today, by the way. Before I forget, I'm just going to block the lines. We don't you have to be secretive about it this morning. We no. can just come out and say. We have two tickets to John Mellencamp. Nice. That is That show is coming up this fall, uh, October 23rd in Winnipeg at Bell MTS Place. And then we don't have tickets for this one, but we have tickets where we wanted to just mention that. He's playing Brandon the next day, October 24th at Westoba Place. But we have two tickets for the Bell MTS Place show. And then we also have bomber tickets. We have a four-pack of Blue Bomber tickets to give away. Should we set times for these? Should we commit to times that we're going to do this okay, today? Okay, but then you're just setting yourself up to lie to our listeners, because we always miss these time threshold things. Well, we we should make a, should a be promise a basic right of now. our job, shouldn't it? To yeah. be able to keep a promise when yeah. it comes to time. We promise you sports at 25 after the hour. Yep. We manage to do that. We give you news at the bottom and the top of the hour. Eh, thanks to Jerry, we normally hit that. So what what are you thinking? I'm thinking we should do... Do you want to reward some of our early morning listeners with those Mellencamp tickets? Oh. Do you want to do... 4-7? Okay. Yeah, let's do that. 
So should we do it at, uh, say, 6.56? Let's do it at 6.56 after we have coffee talk okay. and talk. All right. I'm writing it down right now. Jerry, make sure you make a note as well. Yeah, I've, Mel- I've written it down. Melon Camp tickets. Mm. Cannot forget. I'm going to set a timer here on my phone. Okay. Here. And then the bomber tickets. Mm-hmm. How about we give those away at uh, 7.15? Wow. So if you are up and at it this morning, we are going to reward you heartily. Yeah, I like that. Okay. I like the way you're thinking. Bomber. Oh, actually, no, you know, we can't do it in 20 minutes apart. Let's no? Do, how about 45? How about 8.15? 8.15. Okay, tell your friends. Okay. And these are tickets for Friday night's game? Yes, it's a four-pack of tickets for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers for Friday night. Now, we also have, we just had the ride for Dad. Over the weekend, uh, which was an incredible sight, seeing nearly 1,500 bikes roll out of Polo Park. Well, this weekend, there is another motorcycle ride taking place for a great cause, Breast Cancer Pledge Ride. And we are going to speak with one of the event organizers at 6.37. Excited about that. Lots of reasons, lots of excuses to get on your motorcycle uh, with a cause over the summer, two on back-to-back weekends. And... That just may highlight, if you're riding a motorcycle, may highlight how lousy our roads com- continue to be. <laughs> I yep. mean, we are working hard. The city of Winnipeg's working hard to fill potholes and to, you know, regional roads program, etc. But a lot of our highways are an absolute mess. And the provincial government is actually backing off, is slowing down spending on that infrastructure. And it's got the heavy construction folks, a little bit perturbed. I'm curious how perturbed you are. We're going to find out from the Manitoba Heavy Construction Association in a moment. And then at 6.45, we got to talk about this Roseanne business. Uh, quite the uh, roller coaster over the last couple of days for Roseanne and for everyone involved in the show and ABC and the Twitterverse taking aim at her because of her defense. And uh, yeah. Shows it. I think it's for one of the, the main takeaways I got was be careful what you say on social media, especially if you are under the influence of anything. I have. Have you ever gone on Facebook or Twitter? Well, uh, you've had a couple of what are you like Crown Royal the odd time mm-hmm. here and there, a couple of times a year, right? Mm-hmm. Have you ever? Oh, mm-hmm. no. there's a no, no, no. Oh. I stay off the social media <laughs> when you know I might be at a sporting event, but oh no, 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 no. No, not yeah. a good idea. Yeah. It's not a good idea to have a personal communication device of any sort yeah. when you've uh, been indulging. And that goes back till the beginning of the invention of the telephone. Yeah. Okay? You just stay away. Yeah. Unplug, uh, put your hands, or it, put yourself in handcuffs, whatever you need to do. <laughs> Don't touch the freaking phone. <laughs> I'm Greg, he's Brett, and last Saturday morning, we were more than happy to be up nice and early to celebrate the motorcycle ride for Dad, the event that drew, well, almost 1,500 riders uh, to promote prostate cancer awareness, health, and supports. And now this weekend, another event for motorcycle riders to support a different kind of cancer. It is the 2018 Breast Cancer Pledge Ride. It's happening at Assiniboia Downs, and we are joined by one of the event organizers, George, Georgette Paradoski jass Hey, Georgette, how's it going? 
Good morning, guys. Uh, thank you for having me in. I'm it's doing I'm doing great. Good. So how many uh, how long have you been involved in this particular event? Um, since the very beginning, actually, I am the co-founder of the whole thing. The co-founder. Whole yes. When did it start? Uh, 2001. How did this all come about, Georgia? Um, well, what happened was um, I was just a brand new rider, and I noticed that there was more and more women that were riding. So I wanted to get out and do an event that promoted women and riding and safety and health. And um, what we decided to do was a breast cancer pledge ride. And uh, we just, you know, talked to all our friends, talked to all the different uh, shops here in Winnipeg and in Manitoba. And we just told everybody, this is what we want to do. And they came out and supported us. And we did $24,000 in that first year. Wow, good for yeah. you. Now, do you know anybody who's been affected by breast cancer? Actually, I do. Uh, when we first started the ride, I, I found two fellow riders that had breast cancer. And since then, my aunt was diagnosed, my mom, and my sister. So, you know, initially, I didn't have anyone in my family that was affected. And now, I have three. Wow. And that, that it's startling, but also encouraging because... The survival rate uh, goes up the more money that's raised for cancer research. That survivability rate goes up and also awareness, right? Because the earlier these things get caught, Mm -hmm. the better off we all are. And go right ahead, Georgia. Um, So one of the projects that we funded from the very beginning in the second year was we actually purchased or helped purchase a mobile breast cancer screening unit that went everywhere the highways went in Manitoba. So um, it brought the testing to the people so that they didn't have to drive in four or five hours. The, the machines came to them. So therefore, early detection, early better survival rates went up. That's great. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, the event happening this weekend, it's uh, 8.30 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. Again, it starts at Assiniboia Downs. Where do you go? Where do you ride? Well, this is the great thing. So the morning they come to the Assiniboia Downs, we have breakfast there. So there's one event. Then they ride on the highway. They stop at Stonewall, where it's a quick little stop. Then they go to Winnipeg Beach. Now, Winnipeg Beach, they actually treat us so well. They close down Main Street for us. They park the motorcycle Sturgis style, which is down this middle and the sides. So we have the whole Main Street. We have a lot of style, did you call it? Sturgis. Sturgis style. Okay. <laughs> Sturgis I want to make sure style. I heard you properly. Yeah, Sturgis, South Dakota. So um, I heard Georgia too. Sorry. <laughs> So, uh, well, I'm glad you clarified that for everybody else. Um, yes, so um, they really put out, you know, all the stops for us there. They really treat us well. Live music on the bandstand by South Thun- Thunderbird Band, and then they ride to Oak Bank and then back to the Downs for dinner. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Sounds like quite the day. So mm-hmm. how do you get involved? Do you have to register ahead of time? You can register online, and if you're not inclined to do that, you can come out to the event and register on site. Is it available to all riders or just women? All riders, and you don't even have to ride to raise money for breast cancer. You can do that as well. And uh, we've had people come out in their cars and do the event as well. You mentioned that uh, you noticed in 2001 there were more women riding. And uh, from what we learned last weekend, there were lots of women riding. Why do you think that is, that more women are getting involved in getting on a bike? I'm not sure. Uh, I think it's more acceptable now. I don't know for sure, but... When I started riding, I took the motorcycle safety course, and there was 60% of the people in that course were women. So we we over you know we outnumbered them, but we still have a long way to go. Why do you ride? What do you like oh, about it? The riding. Um, 
it's hard to explain unless you're on a motorcycle, but when you get on the bike and you're riding, um, for example, if you go past a flower garden, you, you can't smell that. When you're on a bike, it totally envelops you. Like it's, it's amazing. People say, oh, the wind in your hair. It's the wind everywhere. Like it's total freedom. You cannot think of anything else. The stress level goes way down. You just enjoy. Uh, what about potholes on a motorcycle? You avoid the potholes. Yeah. Like the plague, yes. Is it easier to <laughs> avoid them when you're on a motorcycle? Yeah, because you only have two tires. Okay. Yeah, we, were, we were wondering about it earlier. We had a conversation last half hour. That's right. You got to keep your eyes open so I therefore you, you can't think of anything else. Well, all these uh, walks and runs and rides, uh, some people, oh, why do we have all these things? Clearly people are participating. Yes. It's raising money. And yeah. the awareness factor, I think, is just so important. I mentioned to Brett, I'm going for a diagnostic uh, test in a few weeks here. And a lot of it was initiated by the discussions we have here on the air. Yeah. I'm in a high risk group for a certain type of cancer. And I'm just like, you know what? I haven't been checked in mm-hmm. about four years. It's time that I get checked again. Mm-hmm. And it's been because of the, some of the discussions we were, we've been having on air. So. That's right. uh, I, I think that makes it worthwhile all on its own, whether yeah. you raise any money whatsoever. I think just the raising awareness. So congratulations for, for doing this. For Thank This you. will be 17 years now. Yes. And last year we hit a milestone. We hit the million dollar mark. What? <laughs> yeah, we raised a million dollars. You're really quiet about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Like cumulatively or you raised a million dollars just last year? Cumulatively. Okay. So we actually, over the years, like we started with $24,000 that first year and we've grown ever since. Um, that doesn't say that anywhere in here. <laughs> I'm sorry, but yes, we have raised a million dollars and all of it goes to Cancer Care Manitoba Fantastic. Foundation. We're able to pick the projects that we fund. So some of the projects, like I said, we did the digital, or not digital, we did mobile mammography unit. The first year we did vans to transport the units, but one of our big ones uh, just recently was the digital recording service at the breast cancer clinic. So basically when you go into the clinic, you leave with a flash drive of a meeting with your doctors. So instead of hearing cancer, blah, 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 you hear cancer, you hear the type of tumor, you hear all of that, the treatments and stuff. And so that you're able to go home and then analyze it and do your research and then kind of make an informed decision versus, oh, well, I'm going to pick the one that says 18 years. Right. It's a voice recording of your actual yes. interaction with yes. your doctor, which yeah. uh, goes a long way. I know yeah. one of the doctors that spearheaded that whole line of uh, of thought, and yeah. it's just an incredible yeah. uh, system that's in place now. So uh, congratulations for yeah. that. Thank you. We we did the uh, breast cancer clinics, and then it's now spread to every clinic in cancer care. Yeah, it's a, it's a great program. Yeah. Georgette, thank you for this. You're welcome. How do people register if they're listening right now and they want to get involved? Uh, go to breastcancerpledride.com. There's links there directly to the cancer care site. Georgette Paradoski jazz co-founder and organizer of the 2018 Breast Cancer Pledge Ride. Thanks so much for stopping by. A million <laughs> bucks. Welcome. You need to yell that a little louder. A million wow. dollars. There yes, a million dollars for Cancer Care Manitoba Foundation. Mackling and McGarry in the morning, 680 CGOB, behind the glass, Jerry. Joined now by Tristan Field-Jones, in for a vacationing Shanley Vidal, Kelly Moore, the sports guru of the morning show. And Jeff Braun, who's really good at just about everything he does. Hello. Good to have you guys in the studio. Did not take long for ABC to say, ah, goodbye, Roseanne, after her tweet that, uh, you know, it, it was hate-filled. It wasn't only racist. It was dumb and it was hateful. And, well, 
Are you surprised at how quickly they acted, Brett? This was the show, the comeback story of the TV uh, season, mm-hmm. and maybe the hottest sitcom in a decade. Uh, if you take Big Bang Theory out of the equation, maybe the hottest sitcom in 10 years. Yeah, and it was uh, the darling of the ABC upfront uh, to the point where they actually had Roseanne come out and, and sing. She serenaded their advertisers. Just in the last uh, week or so, right? Yeah. And uh, so I was a little surprised at how quickly and decisive, decisively they acted on this. I, they didn't even give her a chance, really, to, to try to make amends. They just pulled the trigger. Um, with, And they were saying that uh, the quote, Roseanne's Twitter statement is abhorrent, repugnant, and inconsistent with our values, and we have decided to cancel her show. That's ABC Entertainment President Channing Dungy announcing on Tuesday. Jeff, uh, we'll start with you, one of the couch potatoes. Uh, what was your reaction to all of this? Yeah, nonsense? I was shocked. I hadn't even heard about the tweet, and I like woke up from my nap and learned all of it all at once. I was like, what is <laughs> going on in Hollywood today? Uh, D- Disney owns ABC, though, as well, right? Yeah. So, yeah, that that's, they've always been more of a, you know, they're a family-oriented organization. So in that regard, I'm not really surprised that they pulled the trigger. It is sort of nice to see that, you know, someone will, some corporate, even in the face of making money, will just like say, no thanks, let's... Just not do that. So it was Dan, uh, it was Dennis Green who said we are who, who we thought, thought we they were, were right. Yeah. And you know this reminds me of the Charlie Sheen situation when Charlie Sheen yeah. got released. Like this guy Charlie Sheen basically played himself on television, and then he crossed a line, and all of a sudden he was this this bad character, and they had to get rid of him. Roseanne Barr. This is nothing new for her. So ABC knew what they were getting into. She's a volatile individual, never been shy to speak her mind. But uh, the difference between the situation you just spoke of uh, regarding two and a half men, Charlie Sheen was the only individual who paid the price for that. They continued on the show, Ashton Kutcher. I I really feel, and I didn't even watch Roseanne Barr. I wasn't the least bit interested in the show, but I really feel for some outstanding actors and actresses and writers and stage people and so on and so on who through no actions of their own are now out of work like what the only thing i don't understand about the haste for abc to ditch this show is could something not have happened to roseanne barr and then let the others continue on or was she just too big a part of the show that like, like when it, Valerie quit Valerie's family and they change it to the yeah, Harper family and they yeah. Sandy family Duncan order. in yeah. yeah I just think a lot of innocent people got thrown under the bus uh, because of one individual's stupidity yeah that's an interesting point and uh, we were talking about that today as well what do you do when the name of the show is Roseanne, but I completely forgot about what you just mentioned there, Jeff. That was back in the 80s, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did Jason Bateman get his start in that show? Yep. That's right. That's right. Tristan, what do you think of her defense where she said, she's not make, I'm not making an excuses, but uh, I was Ambien tweeting. Oh, yeah. Ambien okay. is a sedative. It's a sleeping pill. What do you think of that? Uh, I'm sure it's possible, but it's just we've heard, how many times have we heard people yeah. Go out on Twitter, say something stupid and realize, stupid or offensive for that matter, and then realize, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that or done that. Oh, dear, this has consequences. I'm so sorry, blah, 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 blah. I mean, it it reminds me a little bit of when, uh, you know, Kanye West infamously uh, posted and accidentally posted naked pictures of Kim Kardashian. Like, really, guys? You did something stupid, and there's a, there's a process involved there before you hit the send button. You're not texting your friend here. 
So, and that's just the one example I can think of. I'm sure there's countless others, but it, it, yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah, like, like she says, not giving excuses for what I did, but I've done weird stuff while on Ambien, cracked eggs on the wall at 2 a.m., etc. If I go home tonight and I get blackout drunk and then go on social media and say a bunch of garbage, what am I going to do? Turn around and say, oh, well, I was drunk. Sorry. It almost feels like one step removed from the shaggy defense. Wasn't me. <laughs> Well, Jerry, you, we've see, we've seen this in the law in the past, where individuals have gotten off of criminal cases based on the fact that they've been impaired either through drugs or alcohol, and it's altered their state of mind. And the judges said, "Well, you weren't really yourself, so we're going to let you get away with this." This is a little bit different, is it not? Well, yeah. I mean, here you're doing something that everyone is going to see. Everyone is. You're you're affecting not only your own name, you're affecting the name of the company you are working for or you are associated with. Something has to be done. Uh, Canceling the show, I mean, it it is her name that's on the show. Right. Um, And I think she's probably a big uh, time producer of the show as well, right? She's probably one of the head producers, so you can't just take her off the show and keep the show. Uh, so they had to do something canceling it. Yeah, it, it's really bad for all the other actors and all the all the people behind the scenes. But I can't think of anything else that they could have done that would have the effect that this does. Anybody in this room ever gone on social media while they've been under the influence of whether it's sleeping pills or alcohol or whatever, or just being no. tired? <laughs> yeah, maybe even Benadryl. You know, Benadryl makes you wo- woozy. No, I, not like that. But I have uh, very soberly. Looked at tweets and deleted them without posting them. I was like, <laughs> smart man. Just take, right. uh, I type it out and then I give it. I give it a second look, anyways, just for proofreading, and then yeah. I give it like another look, just for like, all right, what are the consequences of this? <laughs> of, this cl- of this clever joke I'm about to. I was like, nah. And you know. need to do that, right, yeah. Kelly? Yeah. I mean, in this business, in any business, in your personal life right now, it's just critical that you do that. Yeah, there are uh, circumstances where I know I've sent out tweets and I've been accused of everything under the sun and have said, well, read this, you know, but I guess you really have to be vanilla uh, on on social media to escape any kind of controversy. Can can we get the cast members of The Big Bang Theory to say offensive stuff so that show can get canceled, please? (laughs) (laughs) That's the funniest thing you've ever said, Tristan. Tristan Field-Jones, Kelly Moore, Jeff Braun, Behind the Glass, Jerry, thank you very much. You can weigh in. You can text us, 204-780-6868. about Roseanne and her racist tweet that got her show cancelled. She says that she was Ambien tweeting and she apologizes. Ambien is a sedative. It helps you sleep. And Huffington Post has gone through Twitter and found dozens of hilarious responses to that. A guy named Matt Oswalt says, Not sure if Ambien makes you tweet racist stuff, but I can confirm pairing Maker's Mark with Hot Pockets at 1 a.m. Maker's make Mark, you, what is that? It's a small batch bourbon whiskey. I can confirm pairing Maker's Mark with Hot Pockets at 1 a.m. will make you like all of your high school crush's Facebook photos. <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth Hackett says, I've taken Ambien and all I did was eat a quesadilla cooked inside another quesadilla. <laughs> I can relate to that. <laughs> uh, 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 Noel says, oh, I got to be careful here because there's a couple bad words. While on Ambien, I've made sandwiches, initiated sex with my husband and called a friend to read her poetry at 3 a.m. and didn't re- remember doing any of it, but I wasn't a racist so-and-so. 
So there you go. I'm sure we have at least one or two listeners who use Ambien. Mm-hmm. Be curious to know if you've had any experiences that you'd like to share with us anonymously, of course, 204-780-6868. Because, you know, when it's something that I've never taken myself, I, I want to be careful not to judge. Mm-hmm. However, based on, you know, what people are going back and forth with, uh, you can, you can apologize all you want, but the minute you go, I was... D- She's trying to make an excuse. Yeah. Okay. And then she says, I'm not making excuses. But yeah, you are. And yeah. once again, there's a difference between excuses and reasons. Mm, this is on the other side of the excuse line between reason and excuse. Well, let's take this one step further. I mentioned if I get drunk and go on social media and make a fool out of myself, I can't just say, oh, well, I was drunk. What if I get drunk? There's no or, time or I'm machine. under the influence of whatever. And yeah. then I get behind the wheel. Exactly. Well, I'm not making excuses, but I was drunk. No. I was drunk driving because I was drunk is basically what you're saying. Yeah. I made a bad decision because I was drunk. I made the decision to drive because I was intoxicated. Mm, sorry, that doesn't go over in the court of law or the court of public opinion. So, uh, Roseanne, uh, it looks like she's stuck living with this one. She can probably afford it. That's that's the problem. A lot of the people that work for her uh, count on that job to feed their families. Before we talk about Trans Mountain here, just want to quickly revisit another thing we did last half hour. We made a promise and we fulfilled it. Uh, for anybody who's been listening to Mackling and McGarry for the last couple of years or so, I know that we tend to forget when we say we're going to give stuff away. Uh, so we promise. We also have bomber tickets that we're going to give away around 8.15 this morning. But we had Two tickets for John Mellencamp, Bell MTS Place, Tuesday, October 23rd. And the question was, where is he playing the next day? Behind the glass, Jerry. What was the answer to that? Brandon. Who won? Neil Weinstock. Neil Weinstock. Congratulations. <coughs> if you want to buy tickets, you can do so Friday, starting at 10 a.m. through Ticketmaster. There's a pre-sale tomorrow, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. The password for that at Ticketmaster for the presale is Mellencamp. We do have more Beat the Box Office tickets to give away today, or pardon me, tomorrow and Friday, and we have those bomber tickets as well for this Friday for we'll give away at 8.15. Typically, the only time we talk about oil and gas is when we talk about oil changes and how much it costs to put gas in our car. Mm -hmm. I see it's up to 130.9 pretty much everywhere this morning. Mm -hmm. Found it for 119 yesterday afternoon. Good for you. Well, that was uh, only a small drop in the bucket of conversation as it pertained to oil, gas, pipelines yesterday. Reaction continues to pour in regarding the federal government's decision to buy the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Dan McTagg, Senior Petroleum Analyst at GasBuddy.com and former Liberal MP is not surprised the Feds purchased the pipeline. I said uh, back in March, get ready to own a pipeline. Uh, Didn't get many people retweeting that, but uh, it's there for the record. Uh, It's pretty clear to me that when the federal government uh, had really tried to ride two horses, uh, mollify and appease the environmentalists, while at the same time recognizing that Canada cannot afford to lose what is, a, you know, economically $15 billion a year in activity, uh, sooner or later one side would have to give. And it's pretty clear that when you see foreign-owned, uh, foreign, uh, you know, in, in, uh, agitators, uh, environmentalists, blocking the pipeline, uh, a provincial government that is really uh, hanging by the skin of its teeth, uh, doing the bidding of the green, the three green seats, 
you knew that there was going to be a controversy. The federal government, of course, probably had the wherewithal to say we're building it, damn the torpedoes. But by owning it, it's exercising uh, part of the right it would have, law of eminent domain, I guess, is part of it, which would be that the uh, uh, you can't now, because it's a nationalized pipeline, or will be, uh, it would be pretty hard for the province to come in and say and argue regulation on something that is eminently federal. So I'm not happy about the outcome that it had to come to this. But again, this is what happens when politically you try to appease the environmentalists. And uh, this should not have been an issue of environmentalism. The uh, uh, the process by which Kinder Morgan received the approval was the most rigorous anywhere in the world, bar none. Uh, that still wasn't going to help the disinformation by that particular segment, which continues to pretty much, uh, well, skew the truth about what that pipeline will do. It will help the economy, but it's also built to international standards, the likes of which there are not many others. That pipeline will remain stocked uh, for the foreseeable future until, of course, we run out of oil in Alberta. Uh, the world wants more heavy oil. That's not just China. That's not just, uh, you know, uh, uh, India. That's actually California. One of the biggest customers that came forward wasn't uh, a number of people over in the Pacific. It was actually the California refineries who want Canadian heavy oil. You can do more with it than what Americans are producing, which is light, tight shale oil, or worse, the oil that's being pumped out of California, which is, of course, the dirtiest in the world. However, Aaron Woodrick of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation tells 680CJOB this is a bad deal for the Canadian public. If this was a great deal, you have to wonder why the government was not even thinking about it up until two months ago. And if you consider that it's the $4.5 billion the taxpayers have paid out, that just buys the existing pipeline and infrastructure. If they want to build the expansion, that's at least another $7.4 billion by Kinder Morgan estimates. You're looking at $12 billion. That is money the government does not have. It is money they had not planned to spend, again, up until a couple months ago. And if you look at the government's track record with these kind of so-called investments, which we call corporate welfare, it often does not turn out very well for Canadian taxpayers. So what about the idea of spending money to eventually make money and keep economic activity going? Woodrick says that shouldn't be the government's job. I certainly think that's true for the private sector. I'm not quite sure where the government enters into it. Uh, If we've seen what has happened with Bombardier, for example, the government has thrown billions of dollars at that company to continue to lose money. We saw it with the auto bailout in Ontario. They bailed out GM and Chrysler. Taxpayers, even after they sold the the shares, taxpayers lost $3.7 billion. So I'm not very confident, based on this government's track record, that they're very good at spotting a winner uh, in the marketplace. Winnipeg's civic election is five months away, and so far the most recognizable name is the incumbent Brian Bowman. Global News reporter Diana Foxall breaks down the latest developments in the race for mayor. Winnipeg's civic election will take place October 24th. The race for mayor is now well underway, though candidates can still register until September 18th. But University of Winnipeg political scientist Dr. Aaron Moore says lesser-known candidates ought to have thrown their hat into the ring by now. If nobody knows who you are, you need to give yourself as much time as possible to actually get your, like, make people recognize who you are and get them to know you. Coming in this late when you really need to get people aware of who you are and what your platform is, is going to be very difficult. Tim Dyack, a 30-year veteran of the Winnipeg Police Service, announced he's joining the four other people challenging incumbent Mayor Brian Bowman. He says he decided to run because he thinks he can solve some of the issues affecting the city. Our city is stagnant for growth. We have urban sprawl that continues to spread out and we leave the centre to decay. In order to address 
address that, we need to be able to utilize some of the space that remains dead downtown. And with that, we would start to alleviate traffic issues, and maybe at that point we can look at making it more feasible for Portage and Maine. Dr. Moore says regardless of the five other candidates' campaigns, running against a mayor gunning for his second term is difficult. These people could very well make a good mayor, but you know they don't really seem to have a very high profile. And without a high profile, actually getting enough money to actually run a good campaign, that's very difficult when you have an incumbent. Either way, Dr. Moore says being mayor could be somewhat of a thankless job. Those elected to the position sometimes make sacrifices to do so and don't always get to make good on campaign promises. The job is not a, a fun job. It's it's like a 24-7 job. For the higher profile people that probably have the knowledge and experience to be in that position, in some respects, it might actually be a step down from the position they're in. And one of Dyack's big ideas is just that, pretty large in scale. He'd like to move the CPR rail yards, which would be an estimated multi-billion dollar project. The rail yard there is well over 100 years old and it's uh, considered to be obsolete. And a friend of mine sent me a picture from yesterday and there were four lines of uh, crude oil that were in uh, that rail yard. There's a few people that have studied the safety aspect of having that much explosive material in the centre of our city. But even if being mayor is far from easy, it does pay well. In 2016, Mayor Bowman made upwards of $185,000. With the election now less than five months away, Moore says he does expect Bowman to get a second term, but there is still time for someone to give him a run for his money. Diana Foxall, Global News. At 9.35 this morning, we're going to have the conversation, what would it take for you to give up your job and run for politics? I know you've used this sound effect once before. Was it FIBA? It's Super Spike V-Ball for the Nintendo (laughs) Entertainment (laughs) System. My favorite video game of all time. Thank you, Jerry. (laughs) Jerry Richardson, (laughs) affectionately known as Behind the Glass Jerry. Coming up with all the sound effects this morning, as he usually does. Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry with you till 10 o'clock this morning. And it started as a fundraiser. For the national men's and women's volleyball teams that were stationed in Winnipeg, Super Spike continues, and it is one of the highlights of the spring-slash-summer season. It's a festival all on its own, and there's a special deadline coming up on Friday, Brett. That's right. It is the early bird deadline, and to tell us about this, we have Greg Paseshnik, who is the event manager for Super Spike 2018 happening July 20th, 21st at Maple Grove Rugby Park. Mr. Paseshnik, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. How are you guys? Doing great. How are things uh, over with Super Spike? Are you as busy as ever? Yeah, it's insane. We're getting excited. We're getting really excited. The, the cloudy weather does not make you think about Super Spike, but the heat we've been getting and the sunshine as of late has been. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're getting close. You guys just mentioned our, our early bird deadline, our first uh, – Big KPI is coming up this Friday uh, where, where teams can save up to $120. Uh, we, we like to say, save the beers, save the money. Come on out and, uh, and be frugal. So we uh, that's coming up this Friday. Teams are swarming to get the registrations. In, and typically we get over 300 teams already registered by this Friday. So that's our first big deadline coming up. So for those that have not ever been to Super Spike, and I can't imagine there's anyone in Winnipeg that's never at least, you know, tried to, to attend. Tell us all about it. Yeah, you know, it, it's, this is year 17, so we've been around. Um, I, I always tell people, imagine uh, being down in, in the Caribbean and, and people like to play volleyball, have a, have a frosty beverage. 
There's music in the background. The sun's beating down on you. That's what Super Spike's all about. It's a massive recreation-based volleyball tournament, emphasize the recreation-based. And uh, we get 500 teams out uh, every single year, and, and every dollar we raise from Super Spike goes back to supporting charities in our local community. And so it's not just about the volleyball we have bands playing all weekend. We put a big concert stage up in the middle of over 50 courts. And, uh, and we have local bands. We have some, some big Canadian headline bands we fly in. So it, it's a mix of a fun party, uh, meets rec volleyball tournament, meets live concerts. We have over 20 food trucks that come out to the festival. So it, it's all those touch points Manitobans love and enjoy. Where did Super Spike start? Where was the ori- original location? Yeah, it was at the Forks, um, and you guys mentioned it just before. It was originally a fundraiser for Team Canada Volleyball, and the concept was brought together by a, a group of us that were looking to, to raise funds for the national volleyball teams back in the day outside of the usual golf tournaments and rubber chicken fundraising dinners. So it, it was kind of how could we raise money through a, a fun festival type of atmosphere, um, and that was 17 years ago at the Forks that started. And what happened after the first couple of years is we simply outgrew the forks and we need a bigger location where we can have more courts, get more people out. Um, and it, it's exploded. We have uh, over, well, it's, it's around 4,000 volleyball players alone each year. Uh, another add two to 3,000 people just coming for the bands and, and, and to watch and, and take part in the party. Uh, and then even this year, what's brand new, we're, we're expanding again. We're adding an ultimate Frisbee tournament as part of Super Spike. So people that might say, you know what? I hate volleyball. I can't jump. I can't do anything. I'm uncoordinated. But, hey, I can throw a Frisbee. I, I don't mind doing that. Um, we're adding Ultimate Frisbee as another tournament option for Super Spike. So it's a way for us to further expand and get some new people out to the event. Monster Truck, the Elwins, the Pistol Whips, Vikings, and a good friend of 680 CJOB. She lives in Nashville most of the time, but a proud Winnipegger, Leanne Pearson, part of the incredible music lineup. You, you continue to uh, to make this bigger and better all the time, Greg. Yeah, you know what? It's, uh, it's the Winnipeggers. If people, once they come out for the first time, they always say, why haven't I been here before? And you see them coming back year after year. So it gets compounded and it's uh, just such a, a true Winnipeg event that people love. So encourage everybody to come check it out and, and have some fun. I guarantee you won't be disappointed. Greg, you mentioned the emphasis on recreation, but if there is a competitive team out there or a team that enjoys playing uh, above the, you know, the let's just go out and have a good time kind of level, are there different sort of skill levels for people to enter? Yeah, great question. Uh, the majority of teams go in a recreation division where you, you're not even allowed to spike the ball. It's just kind of getting the ball over the net anywhere you can. That's that's the division I actually go in. But, yes, th- there is a competitive division that we put beside the beer gardens. It's fun to watch. You'll see a lot of ex-university players and national team players playing in that division. And it's co-ed sixes, by the way. It's not twos. We were talking about the Nintendo uh, old video game before, the two-on-two. This is actually co-ed sixes volleyball. So there's lots of people on the court. So you got a lot of teammates, but... Um, going back to your question, there's competitive division. There's even an intermediate division. So if you kind of stay in shape, you like being athletic, you still want to hammer the ball, you can even go in the intermediate one. But if you just want to go for the fun of it and the music and the party and to meet people and to support the charities, the recreation division is always a popular one too. Volleyball is such a big part of life here in Manitoba. The beach, the sun, the music, the frosty beverages, as you mentioned, Greg. Thanks for bringing them all together, and uh, good luck with Super Spike 2018. I'm sure we will speak to you before the event. When is the event so folks can mark their calendars? 
Yeah, it's always the third weekend of July, so it's the 20th and 21st this year, and it takes place at Maple Grove Rugby Park in the south end of the city. Early bird registration deadline this Friday at 11.59 p.m. The cost is $49 per person. After that, uh, the regular registration deadline is July 13th at 11.59 p.m. where it goes up a little bit. So you want to get that early bird registration in. Greg, thanks for joining us today. Awesome. Thanks, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Greg Poseshnik is the event manager for Super Spike 2018. And again, this is a huge event. Uh, kind of a shame to say I've never gone, mostly because I suck at volleyball. Mm. But you don't have to play volleyball You're even good to at enjoy. listening to music, though. I like music. I yeah. like uh, sunshine. I like, uh, you mentioned a couple of things about frosty beverages, and uh, I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, scenery and whatnot there. Yeah. Yes. So, good time. And Super it's just spy. a nice park. Is That's a great dog, spot. The dog park behind there. You ever been that dog park? No. It's great. Uh, great. You should take your little uh, your little Gucci there. It's all about Kinder Morgan Pipeline and the whole idea that the federal government has ponied up billions of dollars to get into the pipeline business. Why have they done this? Why are pipelines so critical? What are the alternatives? We could think of no better person to turn to than Professor of Supply Chain Management at the Transport Institute of Manitoba, our good friend, Barry Prentice. Mr. Prentice, good morning to you, sir. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Good morning. So, Barry, what was your reaction yesterday when you first heard that the government was going to pay out this $4.5 billion to buy the pipeline and uh, move ahead with this? Well, they had to do something. It was very clear. In fact, I suppose, I'm not an expert on this, but uh, under the NAFTA, if the government does something that impedes a foreign country, they can sue for damages. So, we might have had to pay out huge, huge damages if we didn't do this anyway. And uh, as far as the, the purchase, well, it's a, it's a, an asset that's purchased, and I'm sure it's going to have value that can be sold. Uh, whether or not uh, people agree with the whole thrust of, in terms of uh, climate change and, and oil production is another issue. Well, I mean, the, the the zest for oil on the world market is not slowing down as much as we crave alternatives, right, Dr. Prentice? This is something that uh, is is going to take some time for us to transition away from oil. And let's face it, our economy in Canada depends on oil production and the idea of pulling it out of the economy altogether simply is unfathomable. But why, why, why do some people have this hesitation towards transporting oil and gas via pipeline? Because I know when I see four trains in the heart of Winnipeg that are essentially portable pipelines, that makes me far more nervous. Well, indeed. I mean, the pipeline is the safest means of transport. There's no question. Uh, and, and the railways are safe. But if you're going to get any kind of spills, you're likely going to get spills more frequently with the railway. And, and they aren't going to be very often, but they will be more than a pipeline because pipelines so rare. But when you do get a spill with a pipeline, it's usually quite a bit bigger. Now, if uh, we just had a train derailment yesterday near Rosser, Manitoba, um, and was carrying shipping containers on flat cars, no issues of public safety, no one was hurt. Um, but uh, basically, they, they, it looks like there may have been it may have been caused by a storm, as in it was just kind of blown over. So let's say that this train was carrying oil tankers. Um, how sturdy are those oil tankers in the event that a train were to topple over? Yeah. Well, first of all. 
empty containers, of course, might be easier to blow over than oil tankers full of oil. But the the tankers themselves, uh, there's two uh, classes, and the one class that is not as safe as being phased out. And I don't know the exact date of that, but it's only within a few years. Uh, and the ones that are there, they put them through a, quite a torture test. So uh, they're pretty safe. CP now, uh, there's at least one group uh, within CP that's striking now, about 3,000 workers. Uh, is there concern about the dependability of, of rail in our country, Dr. Prentice? Uh, with, with what we saw with grain transportation last year was not ideal in any way, shape or form. Are, are we investing enough? We can talk about highway infrastructure all we want. Are we investing enough in rail infrastructure? Well, as everyone, you know, probably... Uh, knows the railways pay for all their own infrastructure. So they are totally self-funded. And, and of course, it's a function of if the railways are profitable enough to keep investing. And they do. I mean, they they put billions of dollars back into their system every year. So uh, I don't think that's the issue uh, as far as, as safety goes or, or the capacity of the railways. Mind you, uh, I'm one who's not in favor of the regulation of grain rates. I think that's a mistake for various reasons. And notwithstanding the one that uh, was a question of whether there's incentives for the railways to to really do more than than they have to. And, and I think that, you know, the old statement is you get what you pay for. So then as we move forward here, it's, uh, as we mentioned, it's a four point five million billion dollar, pardon me, billion dollar <laughs> commitment. Uh, that'd be a pretty good deal. Otherwise, I think if that if it was a million um, <laughs> we're still we're all wondering, though, what's going to happen in BC, there is a war with BC and Alberta. Uh, but in the meantime, do you think that this is a good investment? You you said you said that maybe they'll be able to make some money. But do you think overall that this is a, a smart play for the government to go ahead with this? Well, the one thing that people may not be aware of is that there's a differential between the world price of oil and the price in North America, which is set in the U.S. And it's about five or six dollars every barrel. And it's higher when you get it offshore. So the mere fact that we have no good access to an offshore market means that we have to take that lower price. So even just taking that value times the amount of oil we export is a big payoff. Uh, So the the pipeline, uh, is it a good deal? Well, again, we have a lot of oil to export. We're one of the largest reserves that, that exists. And as you've said earlier, Uh, For the next 25 years, we're still going to be burning oil. I don't see any alternative uh, in terms of the transition going that fast. So, yeah, I would say this is one that's been certainly thought out through by by business, ready to put their own money in. I guess we have to have a certain amount of confidence they know what they're doing. Yeah, and then for some people, I think that's the difficult part, that last few words you said there, the confidence that they know what they're doing. Getting oil to tidewater, as they call it. Uh, some estimates says say that it costs the Canadian government $15 billion, or Canada overall, $15 billion a year. So we'll see how this rolls out. And if you're, uh, and if you're inclined, uh, Dr. Prentice, please uh, continue to join us. Oh, I would love to. Call me anytime. Barry Prentice, thank you very much for joining us this morning. He is Professor of Supply Chain Management at the Transport Institute of Manitoba. And some are saying outrage over the this announcement about buying the Transmountain Pipeline. A uh, prominent environmentalist who was at the forefront of BC's so-called war in the woods in the 1990s says this could fuel unprecedented protests. Mm. So, yeah, I'm curious to we'll see how see. it's all going to we'll go. We'll see how that all goes down.
Sometimes, Greg, uh, the, whenever the message doesn't get through, the best way maybe to get it through is with dollars and cents. Yeah, unfortunately, economic data sometimes becomes crucial before... As a society, we take action on an issue that's right before us, and we're talking about dementia. Our good friend, Dr. Benedict Albenzi, joining us now, neuroscientist and Manitoba Dementia Research Chair, amongst uh, many other credentials. Here is the title of the paper that he's just completed, Future Trends and the Economic Burden of Dementia in Manitoba, Comparison with the Rest of Canada and the World. And uh, Dr. Albenzi, always great to get time with you. Uh, We've been having this discussion for several years now on the Health Report and other shows over uh, easily the last seven or eight years, the numbers are startling and the economic ramifications of dementia are starting to become calculable. That's right. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, you know, I started paying attention to the uh, global numbers about three or four years ago and, of course, uh, always paying attention the Manitoba numbers. And just even within three years, I see some dramatic changes and some uh, very curious and interesting trends, both good news and bad news for Manitoba. So what is the, why don't you give us the bad news? Well, let me just give you the big picture first. You know, about three or four years ago, about every six seconds, a person would develop dementia in the world. And now we're at a point where some statistics show that every three seconds, we're finding a person develops dementia throughout the world. And this is just within a, a four-year period or so. So that, that was quite striking to me. Also, we see uh, some unexpected rises in some parts of the world like Asia. So by 2040, for example, we expect to see rises by 100% in developed countries like in the U.S. and Canada. But in Asia and India, uh, parts of China and so on, maybe three to 400% rises in dementia. We didn't expect this four or five years ago because probably because of uh, problems with reporting or under-reporting and so on. So lots of interesting trends in, in uh, Canada and Demen- or, uh, Manitoba as well. Uh, you know, Manitoba has been changing the last few years, and perhaps you guys are familiar with these demographics, but we're not a, um, an older population anymore. We're not a slow-growth population anymore. And there are a number of things that have changed in Manitoba that affects uh, that will affect dementia rates. So we've had an influx of uh, people move here, and we're not the oldest. Uh, you know, in terms of the share of population of uh, who's old here in Manitoba, we're not the oldest province anymore. In fact, we're the third youngest province. So that's the good news. The bad news, of course, is that dementia rates continue to rise, and the interesting trend that we de- uh, detected. And it for you know we can't, we looked at about seven different uh, reports and uh, reviews. So that's what this new paper is that we just published in Neuroepidemiology. We reviewed the reports and reviewed the reviews. In about seven or eight years, we go from a linear relationship in terms of the number of cases of dementia to a more exponential relationship. So what does that mean? That means that dementia rates in about eight years are really going to take off in Manitoba. So that's the bad news. So how do we handle this? How do we prepare for it, Dr. Albenzi? Well, there's a couple things that I think should be on our radar. They should have been on our radar all along, but it's, it's going to be a, a huge financial burden for the whole world. Uh, there's about 15 countries that have are participating uh, with the World Health Organization, developing dementia strategies. Canada has talked about it, but I haven't seen any of the details. And, of course, every country is going to have to come up with money 
to uh, not only a strategy, but money to deal with uh, care and research. And so we're going to have to have uh, a serious consideration of, of how many rest homes there are. Of course, there's uh, other concerns about formal care and informal care. So there's lots of things to consider uh, financially and also in terms of, of how we deliver care. And, of course, there's always the research front. As you probably heard a couple of years ago, uh, I'm sorry, within the last couple of years, a number of uh, big pharma companies have dropped out of uh, drug development in terms of trying to develop uh, new drugs for dementia. So um, a lot of things are coming together very quickly. Now, the uh, the total economic burden of dementia, Manitoba, close to $1 billion American. That's expected to grow to more than $28 billion in the year 2038. That is startling. Uh, you also point out that uh, there is going to be a commentary in this review that you've put together on the impact of dementia on Indigenous populations here in Manitoba. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's one of the unknowns, of course. So the uh, I think it's about 14% of the indigenous population actually resides in Manitoba. Uh, indigenous peoples uh, traditionally have, have, had, have had higher dementia rates. And if you look at, at global patterns, uh, usually people with higher uh, diabetes rates have higher dementia rates. Whether that is going to happen in these uh, native groups or not, I'm not sure. Uh, but it is a, a risk factor for Alzheimer's and other dementias. Uh, so if you see uh, populations with higher uh, rates of diabetes, in many cases we see higher rates of dementia as well. So we don't know how that's going to play out. In fact, we, the type of reporting that we have for underrepresented minorities um, is really lacking, not just in Manitoba, but in Canada and throughout the whole world. We don't have good data on uh, a variety of different ethnic groups. Clearly, so, gonna, clearly, this is going to be a, a big piece of the puzzle is to get that data and to process it and get it made public. Dr. Albenzi, I know we could discuss this for another half hour or more quite easily, but we'll have to, to stop it there. Thank you for your time as always. Oh, thank you, Greg. Nice to talk to you. Dr. Ben Albenzi is New York Neuroscientist and Manitoba Dementia Research Chair. As you know by now, the federal government jumped into the Trans Mountain Pipeline foray yesterday with dollars and cents. The federal government has bought the Trans Mountain Pipeline and the core assets associated with it. Jim Carr is Minister of Natural Resources and MP for Winnipeg South Centre. He joins us now. We only have five minutes with the Minister, Brett, so we should jump into this right away. Mr. Minister Carr, good morning to you, sir. One of the first things that I want to know is what happens now in BC? They've been the, the main roadblock here, so what do you do? Well, uh, we make the arguments to Canadians, including in British Columbia, that we need the pipeline. We need the pipeline because it's going to create many jobs, 9,000 in British Columbia alone, because it's going to give us access to uh, other export markets, 99% of all of our exports of oil and gas in Canada to the United States. This will give us an opportunity to hit the Asian market, and it will also mean that we will get a much better price for our crude, and there will be billions of dollars available for governments across the country to spend on hospitals, on education, whatever they want to spend it on. And it's a signal to international investors that when projects are approved in Canada by the government of Canada in the national interest, that they will proceed. That's why we think that this pipeline must be built. And I mean, these are the 
these are the points you've been making for months, if not years, about this project, Minister yeah. Carr. So mm-hmm. how is this going to change now that the government is in charge of this project? How does this reduce the opportunity or the legitimacy of any complaints or court challenges from the British Columbia government? Well, the court challenges uh, will proceed. Uh, There have been judgments even within the last number of weeks uh, from the British Columbia Supreme Court uh, that uh, took the sides of the proponents who said that there had been sufficient consultation. Uh, The Federal Court of Appeal uh, is expected to make a judgment in June on a similar set of circumstances, but you can never anticipate when a court may make a decision or what its reasons might be. Uh, We thought when we approved the project in the first place that the risks were moderate and worth taking, and we still believe that to be the case. Uh, We added an unprecedented layer of consultation to the Trans Mountain expansion because uh, the courts had said in the Harper era that the consultation was insufficient. We learned from that. And um, we are hopeful that the courts will agree that the kind of meaningful consultation and accommodation that the government of Canada has made satisfies our legal and constitutional requirements. Why did you go ahead with this uh, particular route where you decided to, to buy the, uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline and then uh, go ahead with uh, construction as well? Because there were other options on the table, including buying it on an interim basis and then uh, selling it to investors and leaving them to handle construction. Well, uh, it's not our plan to own the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline in the long term. Uh, The project had to be de-risked because of actions and threats of actions by the government of British Columbia. And that was so much risk that uh, a private sector company, Kinder Morgan, said, look, we're not in a position to uh, negotiate between competing provincial governments, British Columbia and Alberta. And there's too much risk for our investors, so we need to find a way where we can be guaranteed that this project will proceed. They weren't satisfied that those guarantees could be in place, so the Government of Canada said that we would buy the assets for $4.5 billion. It's an asset that has value, it has revenue potential, and we will be looking in the near term for private sector companies who might be interested in purchasing it. If the risk was unpalatable for Kinder Morgan, what makes it palatable for the federal government? Well, the federal government, through a crown corporation, uh, has jurisdiction and also is far better positioned to handle some of the intergovernmental issues. Uh, And we think that uh, this will make a difference because we can proceed immediately this summer on construction. Uh, As you know, delays mean increased costs. That's not in anybody's interest, and we think we're in a good position to do it, all the while knowing Uh, that uh, this project, which we think is very important for Canada's economy, for the signal it sends to investors, both here internationally, uh, is a good project, good enough to attract the interests of the private sector. The one part of this deal I'm still trying to, to understand, Minister Carr, is the idea that the core assets of Kinder Morgan have been uh, is a part of this deal. Can you uh, un- unwrap that and unpack that for me a little bit? Yeah, it's the pipeline. The pipeline was built in 1953, uh, has been operating safely since then. Uh, The Trans Mountain expansion is to uh, twin the existing pipeline along the same route and tripling its capacity. 
so that is uh, a very important question, actually, because this is a pipeline that's been in safe operation for a very long time and through an established route. So this expansion project uh, seeks to, I think the numbers are moved from 330,000 barrels a day to about 890,000 barrels a day. Uh, which gives uh, Canada the opportunity to export this resource at a much higher price, while at the same time we're investing a billion and a half dollars on a world-class ocean protection plan. All Canadians want our coastlines well protected, and also uh, in partnership uh, with Indigenous peoples, uh, wherever we have been able to find Indigenous partners, and there are many of them. Uh, because we believe it's very important that Indigenous people share in the prosperity of our natural resource sector. So the federal government owns the current pipeline, at least for the time being? That's right. Uh, The current pipeline and um, the assets associated with it, uh, that has significant value. And uh, the revenue potential from this pipeline also is, uh, we think, sufficiently attractive that uh, the private sector will be interested in taking it over in time. Jim Carr, thank you very much for the access this morning. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Jim Carr is Minister of Natural Resources and is the MP for Winnipeg South Centre. Yeah, I was just curious to see how long this is going to take to play out. I know that uh, provinces have sort of jurisdiction over environmental stuff, but the uh, feds have the jurisdiction over transportation, and that's what this is, and they should be able to come in and just kind of shoehorn this through. Um, but yeah, we got to... As you pointed out earlier, in case you're just tuning in, Greg made a great point that we're going to be using oil for a long time yet. I know we're trying to find cleaner energy and, hey, let's hope that some smart scientist type person, (laughs) some science guy or gal figures it out. But in the meantime, we got to drive and we need oil to do it. Yeah, it's imperative. The rest of the world is not transitioning to any other source uh, anytime soon. And if they are, certainly not in the numbers required to make oil and gas obsolete. That's not going to be happening for decades yet. And, you know, like I said earlier, I'm in favor of transitioning to alternate forms of energy as much as anyone. Uh, But in the meantime, uh, we need to exploit this resource. We need to make as much money as we can. Environmentally friendly. While we do it, yes, uh, but efficiently as well. And the only way, the only way to move this stuff efficiently is via a pipeline. The idea of continuing to move oil and gas, uh, and we're going to continue to do that because there's no efficient way to move it to the east other than uh, rail. Uh, we, we need to sort that out because the the rail question is still one that, that needs to be answered. And our conversation with uh, Professor Barry Prentice uh, touched on that topic earlier as well. Behind the glass, Jerry, who won the bomber tickets for this Friday's game against Edmonton preseason game? Gene Nobis. Gene Nobis. Congratulations. Greg, you asked a very skill-testing question of uh, Gene Novus. (laughs) I think it was skill-testing. you got to know about what's going on here on 680 CJOB, who is Bob Irving's broadcast partner on Blue Bomber Broadcasts. The answer is... Doug Brown. Doug Brown, also my co-host on the Blue Bomber Podcast. Well, actually, it's the Blue Bomber Podcast with Doug Brown. I just happened to come along for the ride. And so we are inviting you to uh, subscribe, share, download the Blue Bomber podcast. We just released on globalnews.cacgob.com the top three 
coaches in Blue Bomber history based on our previous podcast. You were allowed to vote, and uh, boy, a whopping 51.1% of voters selected Bud Grant as the number one head coach in Blue Bomber history. Cal Murphy was voted the second best Blue and let Bomber me hang coach. On. And then the, the third one, Jeff Reinbold. <laughs> Jeff Reinbold, no. Uh, it was Mike Riley was the uh, third Jeff Reinbold. <laughs> I, it's funny because I did mention in the podcast, is there a way we can get Jeff Reinbold's name on this ballot? No, it was just simply not to be. Anyway, our next topic of conversation, the 15 top moments in Blue Bomber history. We had fun recording that yesterday. It'll be available in the next 24 hours or so. So please uh, go to cjob.com and you can subscribe to the Blue Bomber podcast. Uh, we'd love to have you. Tristan Field-Jones, interim content producer while Shanna Lee Vidal is away. He has joined us in studio. Mr. Field-Jones, good morning to you, sir. Hello there. What uh, brings you in? I uh, I, I was following this story, excuse me, uh, I was following the story from uh, the New York Times. Uh, I think this is one particular event that's been ignored a little bit recently. It's one of those things where it doesn't didn't really happen in our backyard, so we kind of forget about it. The death toll surrounding Hurricane Maria. If you followed a little bit of that coverage last September when the hurricane hit, you would have known the absolute devastation that this storm brought to that island. And remember, Puerto Rico is technically a territory of the U.S. No, it's not technically. Any, well, it, 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 it is. It basically is the U.S. It I mean, is the, part of the United States, and that's the problem, right? There right. are certain lawmakers who see them as this sort of technical appendage, like this ugly stepchild of the United States. They are an American territory, plain and simple. Exactly. So what happens is, uh, the, and Hurricane Maria, by the way, was the most intense hurricane, Atlantic hurricane, I should say, of 2017. The official death toll was 64. This was according to government fish, uh, officials. Which government? The U.S.? or The, the, the Puerto Rican no, government. Puerto Rican and, government. Yeah. And what happens is a lot of people called BS on that. And so researchers went down there and they did some, their, some of their own surveying by talking to people, by going on the ground. And they think that 64 is, not surprisingly, a dramatic undercount. They think it's closer to 4,600. Let me put that into perspective. Hurricane Katrina, Mm -hmm. 1,836 death toll. Let's use other uh, disasters. 9-11, less than 3,000 people there. In terms of the Iraq war, the number of U.S. military personnel who were killed in Iraq, 4,500 roughly. So if this if this number of uh, people dead from Hurricane Maria is in fact accurate, that would make it deadlier than a, a countless number of tragedies, not the 64. Cut it in half. The way the United States mainland has turned its back on Puerto Rico, in particular the federal government, is inexcusable. It's absolutely horrible. Well, and, and the way that these researchers went about this, it was really interesting. They actually spoke, they went on the ground, uh, and what they did is they spoke to, they took a sample size of, what they say, 3,000 residences. And they're saying, based on that, they determined that 38 people had died from within those 3,000 residences. So they turned that number into a mortality rate, and then they applied that to the larger population, and that's how they came up with these figures. They used you know, all sorts of uh, mapping technology, off-road vehicles, all, all sorts of things to try and figure this out and there was one particular uh example here where they were saying uh, uh for instance there was one area where they went to a small island just off the coast of puerto rico they thought they would talk to 35 households there was one person left 
because a lot of these people died alone. They were in these houses to get, they were, they were not accounted for until months afterwards. Uh, and this survey was done without the participation of the Puerto Rican government. There was uh, zero uh, data pr provided to them. In fact, the officials would not provide any information to them regarding this. And I see as well that uh, the Harvard study surveyed, you mentioned the 3,000 homes across the island, and they found that uh, the mortality rate rose 62% and say that the final death count could be as high as 85 Hundred? It's it's possible. Yeah. Now again, this is this is a preliminary study, so there's more work to be done here. But because of that, it is very possible that could, could be, and that would put it as one of the deadliest Atlantic hurricanes. It already, if this 4600 number is accurate, it already is one of the deadliest of all time. That 86 or 8800, whatever that number would be, would put it even more so on that list of of people. And again, this is like I said, I think this is an issue that we forget about because it's so far away. But these are Americans. Yes. These are our neighbors. Tristan Field-Jones, thank you very much for bringing this to our attention, especially when you consider that the official government death toll is just 64. So clearly their reporting system is bad. Right now, we want to speak to someone who has, in fact, run for office in the Winnipeg Municipal election. Sajid Mera is an entrepreneur. We love visiting with him. He's also former candidate for St. Norbert in 2014, right, Sajid? That's correct, yeah. Mr. McMacklin, uh, Mr. McGarry, pleasure to be here. <laughs> Always great to see you, Sajid. Uh, one of the best dressers in our entire community. But we wanted, we reached out to you because we wanted to get your perspective. You're obviously a successful business owner. You've been very active in the community for years and years. So that part of it, uh, it wouldn't surprise me for you to get involved politically, but... What considerations did you have to make in terms of making that choice to throw your hat in the ring? Because now all of a sudden, your platform, your beliefs, your philosophies on a variety of different issues are now very public. Absolutely. So there's a couple of considerations when you're considering running. And, you know, first and foremost, there's the practical stuff. Make sure your family's on board. Um, make sure your financial house is in order. Uh, make sure you're ready as a person to be... Uh, you know, to be subjected to all kinds of questions and uh, pressures and so on and so forth. So make sure that's all ready. Um, after that, um, be ready to know what uh, what the issues are. Uh, be ready to go on the door and ask, have somebody ask you, you know, something that may not necessarily be related to that jurisdictional question uh, at the door and be able to be able to answer. So know what the issues are, whether they're a municipal issue or a provincial issue or a federal issue, uh, and to be able to talk about it succinctly. Um, and the bottom line, I always say for, for people is before you decide to run whatever office that you want, ask yourself, why do I want to do this? Why is this key for me? Um, and that's a question that I think if you can answer uh, honestly for yourself, you'll be good to go. Now, you're, as Greg pointed out, you're a successful entrepreneur. You co-own and manage East India Company Pub and Eatery, which is so good, by the way. If you've never been there, go. It's a nice place. And the buffet is one of my favorites of all time. Um, but uh, when you decide you want to run for office, as a business owner, do you have to sort of separate yourself from that or, or back away from that? Absolutely. Um, so for, first of all, any, any office is a full-time job. 
right? So it's don't don't think that, hey, I'm going to do this for three hours a day and I'm going to do this for six hours a day and I'm going to come back to this. No, you absolutely do need to be able to separate yourself. In some jurisdictional issues, and we've seen this uh, federally as well, there actually do, does uh, need to be a uh, legal separation of a person from that particular uh, entity, whatever that entity be, okay? Uh, I think we're a little bit uh, looser when it comes to provincial and uh, or uh, municipal uh, spots here in, in Manitoba and Winnipeg. Um, but, you know, if you're one of those persons that's micromanaging your small business or, or you know, website or, or whatnot, forget that. You're going to be full-time doing what it is that you're doing, especially, again, you know, if the bottom line is to serve your constituents at whatever level, you want to make sure that you're giving them 100%. They've given you 100% of their trust. You want to make sure you're giving them 100% back of your energy. How do we encourage top-notch people that can ask and answer all the questions you just outlined and more for themselves and for those around them? How do we encourage them to run? Are we on the right track? Or are we? Do we need to do some things a little bit different to to encourage people to get involved? Sure. So, how many hours do we have, gentlemen? Can we? <laughs> <laughs> well, we got about five minutes. <laughs> well, look. Uh, you know, the, the the question really is: Are we bringing the right people into office? Are we encouraging the right people to come and run? Uh, in many ways, um, yes. Uh, in many ways, can we do a, a lot better job? Uh, absolutely. I think. You know, if if you're a person that's really fired up about um, a single policy issue, um, you know, a, a single thing, um, maybe you want to stop and and take a look and and take stock of that and say, well, you know, really, what are the issues for my constituents? And you know, go to a community meeting, talk to a few people around, and and see what they have to say. Uh, at the end of the day, you want to be a reflection of your community that you're going to be representing down the road. What are what are issues for, um, you know, inside St. Norbert, as an example? Uh, but also, what are the issues for Winnipeg and Manitoba? Because you need to you need to have those front and center as well. Because at the end of the day, if you are elected, you're going to be sitting on different committees and different boards, and you're going to be expected to know and answer uh, legitimately questions about different issues that are not just <clears throat> about your parochial area, but also about the city and the province at large. We are speaking with a Winnipeg entrepreneur, Winnipeg business owner. He owns, uh, co-owns and runs East India Company Pub and Eatery, which is sensational. And he was a former candidate in St. Norbert in 2014. His name is Sachet Mera, and he's in studio with us on 680 CJOB. And just prior to the forecast, Sachet, I said we were going to ask you, do you think that city pays enough. I just double checked the compensation. It looks like councillors made between 92 grand and about 113 grand. Is that enough to attract good candidates? So I think something you want to consider uh, when you're looking at whether it's a municipal role or the provincial or the federal role role uh, is, you know, what are the hours that I'm putting into this, right? Am I waking up eight o'clock in the morning, I'm going to work for nine and then I'm back home by four and I'm, I'm done by five, right? Um, the reality is any political role that you're going to be involved in, please consider it a 24-7 role. Um, you are on all the time. You're talking to people. You're expected to know information um, generally beyond the scope, maybe even of what it is that you're looking at so that you can answer more wholly depending on whatever topic has come up. Um, so in that case, let's say you're earning $100,000 a year, right? Uh, if you do the math and you divide it over an hour, uh, is it even still a competitive salary. And I think that's a question that the community has to come together and answer. Uh, is this something that is still uh, lucrative enough or good enough that we're attracting the best quality candidates that are coming in to deal with 
um, the very difficult questions we have to ask. As a business person, I always look at Winnipeg or, <clears throat> you know, Manitoba or Canada. Uh, it, well, let's take Winnipeg, you know. I mean, this is not a million-dollar corporation. If you looked at Winnipeg as a business, you know, this is a billions-dollar company uh, that has all kinds of intricate moving parts, uh, you know, whether it's um, uh, businesses coming in, whether it's import, export, whether it's people living here, our housing, whatnot. And so as a very large corporation, you want the very best CEOs around that you can bring in and COOs around uh, to, to come in and run it. I mean, if you had a large corporation, would you want just anybody at the top of the head? No, you want the best possible people to come in and make sure that they can make those decisions uh, in the best uh, in the best, uh, you know, light uh, for its uh, shareholders and in our case for our citizens. Okay, so no, typically <clears throat> when I apply for a job, it might be a couple of week, maybe a month process. I have one, two, maybe three interviews before someone decides whether or not they're going to hire me. Typically, I do not have to quit my job or step away from my position if I want to apply for another job. Quite often, there's a transition, right? I get my two weeks notice, and then I start at my new position. In politics, the application process is lengthy, it's expensive, and there's no guarantee that you're going to be successful on the other end. So it's a very difficult choice for a lot of people to make and good people to make to walk away from either a good paying job or a position of influence where they might have to step away from that position in order to throw their hat in the ring. And I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, <clears throat> you know, to walk away at the minimum, if, if you consider the writ period, is a three month period. So you're not working, you're going to be out door knocking or you're going to be going to community meetings, you're going to be meeting with constituents, uh, you're going to be talking to media, you're going to be researching documents, so you're going to be doing a lot of reading, you're going to be spending a lot of time on social media. That's minimum three months during the writ period, but really the writ period is just the tip of the iceberg. That's what the public sees. That's what the public sees, and that's the kind of time where everybody's antenna is up, and you know they're paying uh, they're paying attention. But the reality is, for those people that are actually you know interested in their neighborhoods or inside city politics, they've been at this for years or decades, right? In some different capacity or another. Um, you know, you were kind enough to mention that you know you've been here. Uh, you know, you've done this, you've done that uh, around the city. The reality is, uh, you know, for somebody like me, I've spent oh God, at least 15 years now on different community boards and chairs and more than I can probably shake a stick at or even would want to apply a dollar value to uh, for, for the time volunteered and given because you want to make sure that you're learning, you want to make sure that you're relevant, you want to make sure that you're uh, in a position again to be able to answer questions in an eloquent and knowing manner when it when it does come up. So that three months is barely a reflection, barely scratches surface on what's going on out there. And I know that many, many good people go inside uh, go inside the race. And we have many good people that are, you know, elected to office uh, and they've all put in that time. And so, you know, when you have, uh, you know, a, a slate of good candidates in whatever different area that's running, um, you know, look at their backgrounds. How long have you been doing this? Uh, what are the issues? Um, and, uh, you know, are you a good reflection of this particular community and uh, are you in it for the long haul? Came up a little short in 2014. You thinking of running again? You know, I, I'm one to, to, to say uh, never say never, right? 
Um, you always want to make sure that, uh, you know, you're doing things for the right reason. You want to make sure that, uh, um, uh, you know, that your family's on board. I, I made the, I made the joke last time when I was running, you know, a couple of the most important decisions I ever made, uh, you know, jointly with my partner were, are we getting married? Uh, <laughs> you know, and, uh, are we running? And, you know, and I did use the, the, the term, are we running? Right. Because the reality right. is it's a, it's a family decision, right. When you're going ahead, um, look, my, you know, for me, uh, uh, for me, it was always something to serve, to give back to the community. And if I can find good ways to continue doing that, I will continue doing that. Sajid Mera, entrepreneur, former candidate in St. Norbert. Again, the restaurant, East India Company, pub and eatery, which for those who don't know, where is it, Sajid? We are on 349 York Avenue, right next door to the convention center. Been there for about 26 years. Highest rated, longest standing family restaurant in Manitoba. Really? Well, I didn't know. It didn't matter. I, I think it's delicious. That's all I need to know. Uh, you should go there. Satchit, thanks for the visit, man. We Pleasure, love it. gentlemen, always. It's uh, good to be in your company. I'm Brad. He's Greg. Behind the glass, Jerry. And Tristan Field-Jones in for Chanelie today on 680 CJOB. And